This is They Create Worlds, episode 138. Dave Nutting Associates. One, two, three, four. If anybody wants to find me, I'll be in the last place you would look. In a place where people used to be. A land that's called reality. You'll find me there. Welcome to They Create Worlds. I'm Jeffrey, and I'm joined by my co-host, Alex. Hello. Previously on They Create Worlds, we talked about Dave Nutting, brother of Bill Nutting, who we all know about. But Dave is new, adventurous. Instead of just Nutting Associates, he said he didn't want anything to do with that. He wanted Dave Nutting Associates in order to continue on a proud tradition of R&D in creating solid state. Pinball. <laughs> exactly. Just to very briefly recap where we left off, we may recall that Dave Nutting, after breaking with his brother, much controversy, still don't know exactly what happened, entered the coin-operated game business on his own with a manufacturer called Nutting Industries, created IQ Computer, similar to Nutting Associates Computer Quiz, ran into some difficulty, founded a new company, Milwaukee Coin Industries, expanded more broadly into novelty game products, but felt that this would not be sufficient to sustain the company long term because it's so hard to be in the novelty game business where it's up, it's down, it's up, it's down, and you constantly need new ideas. Wants to get into pinball, feels he needs a hook to get in there, decides that hook will be solid state, begins focusing on these projects only to have Milwaukee Coin Industries decide that it is much better to be an operator of coin-operated games than a designer and manufacturer of coin-operated games, and asks him to leave the company, which continues to reside in his building that he owns. So he goes literally right next door. I mean, probably doesn't even leave. He's probably just like, okay, well, fine. Then the space that was my workshop is now going to be the workshop of my new company, Dave Nutting Associates. You guys can continue operating your Red Baron arcades out of the storefront over here. I'll keep collecting rent from you. I will go off and do my own thing. But this time, rather than being a manufacturer, which had mixed levels of success, me and my good buddy Jeff Fredrickson, who we introduced last episode as well, are going to come up with new game concepts and then try to sell them on to other people. At this point, he is still laser-focused on this idea of solid state. By the time Dave Nutting Associates is established on roughly June 1st, 1974, Dave and Jeff Fredrickson have been working on a couple of different prototypes. Pinball is still the core idea, solid state pinball. In fact, he's had Bally, who he's entered into a development contract with, send him a couple of pinball machines of their one of their latest games called Flickr. It's not a particularly notable game. It just happens to be the game that's in production at that moment. Has them send a couple of Flickr machines that he can use as a test bed. Because pinball is a particularly complicated game, as we have talked about before, he also continues to try to modify other games to get more experience with the whole solid state thing. We mentioned in the previous episode how there was a game called Airball that they had done and that he prototyped a solid state version, even though the one that was released was electromechanical. 
Well, he also decides that the old quiz game concept, which had petered out after 1970, but it's 1974 now. It's a new day. Maybe people will go for it again. He figures that's a simple enough concept in terms of the design and production of it that this could be a good test bed for solid state as well. And so he has Fredrickson also work on an update of IQ Computer that they aptly name the Super IQ Computer. Because that's the simpler product, it's the one that's actually finished first. At the end of June, they have some people from Midway down. Remember from previous episodes that Midway is a subsidiary of Bally. They started as an independent company. Bally purchased them in 1969. Even though they're owned by Bally, they still make most of their own decisions themselves. The heads of Midway, Hank Ross and Iggy Wolverton, come down, as does Joe Robbins from Empire Distributing. Empire is one of the biggest, most powerful distributors in the field. They are also, at this point, a subsidiary of Bally. Bally bought them in 1972. So these are Bally-adjacent people, but they're not demonstrating directly to Bally corporate. So Ross Wolverton and Robbins come down. They take a look at the Super IQ computer at the end of June, and they're like, eh, okay, fine, you did it, that's great. Pat on the back, but nobody wants quiz games anymore. We are not interested in commercializing this product. It's interesting, Dave Nutting completely forgets that they ever even did this He's passed away now, as as we said in our previous episode, but in the later years of his life, he completely forgot that this was a thing they ever did. I did interview him in, I believe, 2017. He was about 87 or 88 at the time, but his memory was still pretty good. He remembered trying to do the airball solid-state thing, and he still remembered, of course, the solid-state pinball project. But when I asked him about the IQ computer project, he was like, no, we never did that. Of course, I didn't tell him because there's no point in arguing with interview subjects. I could have told him, well, sir, that's not what you said in sworn testimony in a court of law in the (laughs) 1970s. So we know they did that project, but it faded away so quickly that not even Dave in his later years remembered that they had done it. All attention at this point, then, is focused on the Solid State Pinball Project. After doing their kind of prototype testbed stuff, they take one of these two flicker cabinets that they have, And they start replacing all of the steppers and relays and wiring and everything else with what they call the Bally Brain, which is just a small microprocessor-driven computer system. Because by this time, the microprocessor is a thing, albeit just barely. Because they were starting to do solid-state components in some of their other games, even though they weren't fully solid-state yet, they did have a relationship with Intel. They did buy circuits from Intel. They learned about the 4004 microprocessor from Intel from like their sales rep or something. They actually end up at some point in this process going to a sales convention held by Intel or a marketing seminar, a sales or marketing seminar, where the Intel 4004 is being discussed and broken down for engineers. Afterwards, Dave Nutting keeps in touch with the rep that put on the seminar. Even though the microprocessor, the 4004 itself, was a few years old by this point, come out originally in 1971, they had just completed their first development system for the 4004 microprocessor, the Intellect 4. 
they were just ramping up on these, so they didn't have many of them. They couldn't just hand them out to anybody who wanted one. But Dave Nutting kept in touch with the rep, basically said to him, look, we are an R&D company for Bally Manufacturing. Bally Manufacturing is one of the largest companies in coin-operated games. I believe fully that microprocessors are going to transform the world of coin-operated games. And us, Dave Nutting Associates, we are at the vanguard of this movement. So if you give us one of your precious Intellect 4 development systems and we develop this solid-state coin-op system, you are going to get so many orders for chips from coin-operated amusement companies. You won't even know what to do with yourself. He was able to convince them that this was a good bet as one of the places to give one of these early development systems to. So they got themselves an Intellect 4. They start replacing everything in the Flickr. They turn it on for the first time and they play it. And it's a disaster, Jeffrey. An absolute disaster. That's not good. I think probably most, if not all of our listeners, know the basic idea of how pinball works. At its most basic, the way pinball works is there's a ball floating around and there are targets. You hit a target or fall into a scoring hole or whatever form this target takes. You hit a target, you get points. You get a set number of points each time you hit the target. It's reliable. Sometimes you can get score multipliers. Maybe the first time you hit it, it's 100, and the next time it's 500 because you got a score multiplier in between. But it's reliable. You hit a target, you get points. Points go up on the totalizer reel on the back glass. You keep going until you run out of balls, and then you see how many points you ended up with. Very simple. Very reliable. They plug in Flickr. It hits a target, and maybe this time it gives you 100 points. Maybe the next time you hit it, it gives you 400 points. Not because you've gotten a score multiplier in between, but because the game randomly decided this time that target is worth 400 points. Sounds like a programming bug. Then maybe next time it's 200 points. Hmm. Oh, dear. Here's what they discovered. It's something that's obvious once you think about it, but it's not intuitively obvious until you actually put the work in. Pinball machines are operated by relays. You hit the target, it triggers a relay, which closes a circuit, which registers points. Then that relay opens again, then stays in the open position till it's hit again, closes, complete circuit, points. Very simple. Relays are mechanical. Relays are relatively slow compared to electronics. True. Electronics are fast. Close to the speed of light. If a ball hits a target and a relay closes and you get your points, it takes a moment for that target to reset. If your ball gently rubs against that target again while it's going someplace else, you don't get points again because the machine's still resetting. We're talking about stuff that's happening in less than a second. We're talking about really small periods of time. It's sort of akin to if you play pinball where you hit the ball and it hits that thing so hard it just stops there for a second because it's Uh pseudo stuck and then it just kicks it out and then it resets. Right. Electronics don't need to reset. Electronics 
are registering multiple hits, bam, 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 in a period of tenths of a second. That's why it's random. That's why the point totals are random. So in effect, what they should have done is have it set up so that it ignores anything past the first initial hit up to, say, half a second to a second or so, giving that proper time for that relay to reset. The likelihood of you hitting the ball back to that same spot in under a second, next to impossible. (laughs) Exactly. And that's exactly what they did to fix it. And you even got the time frames correct. They figured out through testing that it takes about half a second for a relay to reset. Fredrickson just reprogrammed it so that it ignored any inputs for half a second after the first input. That completely fixed the problem. Woohoo! But it's just one of those things that you don't think about until you're actually doing this conversion. Nobody had to stop and think before what the timing of a relay closing was because it's just a thing that happens. It's not important. Electronics made it important. They get that sorted out. They get the machine running. It's running great. They replace the score reels. These are literally reels that were used on old pinball machines with an LED readout. Since everything's electronic now, why not? Then, on September 26th, 1974, we know the date because depositions. They have to keep track of these kind of things. They bring in a delegation from Bally, from Bally Corporate this time, all the bigwigs. John Britz, who is the executive vice president of the company, and because Bally's a more diversified company at this point, getting into other areas, he's basically the number one guy in coin-operated amusements, is leading this delegation. They all come out to Milwaukee to see what Dave Nutting and Jeff Fredrickson have done. They are ushered into a room. There are two pinball tables in the room, both flicker. You will recall from previous episode that we didn't really mention it at the top of this episode that they had Bally provide two copies of their latest machine in production, which was Flickr. It's not an important machine. It just happened to be the one coming off the line at the time. They're ushered into a room where these two Flickr machines are sitting. From the looks of it, they are basically identical, except one of them has this strange LED readout on the back glass instead of scoring reels. Nutting demonstrates both of the machines to them. Plays first one, then the other. Says, look at this, everything's the same, everything's identical. Scoring the same way, playing the same way, feels the same, etc. Then they do the dramatic reveal. They open up the two machines. The one machine is what you'd expect to find in a pinball machine. It's wires and relays and steppers and switches and whole mess of components. Those things were messy. Very messy. The other machine just has this tiny little box with a few wires running out of it. And they're basically like, gentlemen, behold, solid state pinball. So I imagine at this point you have the equivalent of Fry there going. (laughs) You would think so. The answer is almost, but not quite. They understand right away once they get over their initial shock that this is clearly something they want to do. John Britz, at first, because this microprocessor stuff is still really new in 1974, John Britz at first is looking around, opening doors to see where the computer's hiding that's actually powering this thing, the big mini computer or something. Once they understood that, no, that little black box 
It was literally, both literally and figuratively, a black box. That little black box in the pinball machine is doing all the work. Once they got over that shock, they were like, okay, we want to do this because there are so many things you can do. And we've talked about this a little bit before because we've covered solid state pinball in the context of Bally, in the context of Williams, in the context of just arcades generally. But the two most important things that you can do with solid state pinball are, one, it's a heck of a lot easier to maintain. Because when you have all of those wires going everywhere, when you have all of these mechanical parts that are actually moving, when you have all of these solder joints and everything, wiring harnesses and whatnot, you have so many points of failure, it's not even funny. Solid state allows you to get rid of nearly all of those points of failure. There's still going to be some electromechanical stuff in, like, say, your flippers and some of your targets that have special movements to them, but you're eliminating, like, 90% of your service headaches by going from wires and switches to electrons and PCB tracings. That's the one thing. The other thing is that pinball had actually evolved to be more of a two-player game throughout the 50s and 60s. Obviously, you could play it yourself, but the idea was to make it competitive, to get more life out of it. You play a turn, your buddy plays a turn, you get another turn, you alternate. It keeps track of both of your scores, and then it's a competition with another player instead of just, oh, look at the pretty ball and the pretty lights. When you're using that electromechanical hardware, you can't save the state of anything. There's no memory. It's able to save the score because the score is entirely analog. It's literally just turning the reels every time you score points. Since you have two sets of reels, you can have the machine switch from, okay, right now we're totaling score on this reel, and then player two's playing now, so we'll switch so that we're completing the circuit that causes the reels for player two to move instead. You can keep track of separate scores, but there is no memory. There's no ROM. There's no RAM. There's nothing in there. So if you've got a score multiplier going, and by the end of the 60s, pinball had evolved to the point where score multipliers and hitting particular parts of the board for bonus points and that kind of thing were very integral into the way pinball played. If you have no memory, you have to reset those score multipliers every time you switch players. You don't get to pick up right where you left off. When it's your ball again, you're starting over from scratch. You're still adding to your score. But any of the good work you've done on the table is lost. With solid state, you can also put memory in there. You can put RAM in there. You can keep track of the multipliers. That means you can both have more complex score multipliers that are more intricate and more interesting. And it means that if you have a two-player competition going on, you can preserve all of those score multipliers for each player as you go. So there's humongous advantages to going to solid state. Ali sees that right away. However, they also know that this brilliant new system created by Nutting and Fredrickson is also going to be patented by Nutting and Fredrickson. And Nutting and Fredrickson are going to license their system to them. They're not going to sell the underlying technology to them. They're not going to give up patent control. They basically say, thank you very much. This is very interesting. However, we're going to create our own solid-state pinball system with blackjack and hookers. And that's what they do. They create their own solid-state pinball system. They're still linked to each other. 
There's no violation here. They probably still paid Dave some kind of licensing fee on the original patents in order to do this. I mean, I think Dave still got paid by Bally. They didn't just leave him out in the cold. But they wanted to have a system that they fully controlled themselves. So they went off and they built their own solid-state system. They rejected Dave's system. So they probably paid whatever it is you pay if you do a parallel evolution, but you weren't there first to patent it, Mm -hmm. versus a, I'm licensing your exact implementation. Exactly. Because this happened, Dave needed to find someone else that he could license his system to that would actually make games. We mentioned in the first episode that kind of his rabbi or his conciliary or his big advisor on how the industry worked was a distributor by the name of John Belota, who was a big East Coast distributor. He basically goes to John and he says, I've got the system. It works. It's great. Bally loved it, but Bally doesn't want to use it. They're going to make their own. What do I do now, buddy? Belota connected him to a relatively new company established just in the last couple of years in the early 70s, called Merco in Arizona. It is Merco, M-I-R-C-O. Because of the way the human brain works and the way we process words, it's very easy when you read that or you type it to accidentally do micro instead of Merco. I promise you it is Merco. This was an Arizona company that was actually a general engineering company that wanted to make a little more money to finance some of their other engineering projects. A couple of the founders had actually been involved in importing foosball tables from Germany before they founded Merco. It's kind of a long story, not important to our Dave Nutting story. Because of that, they were aware of the coin-op business. So they actually purchased another company in Arizona called Arizona Automation that was just getting involved in coin-operated amusements and made that a subsidiary to Merco and decided to enter the coin-op business. Because at this point, very different from when Dave Nutting was entering the business with his trivia game, at this point in 1973 when Mirko is getting into this, this is the period of time when Pong and the Pong clones, the ball and paddle video games, were super hot. There were engineering companies, some of which we've talked about before, like Ramtech, that saw video games as an opportunity where they could fund their traditional engineering projects by getting rich quick on ball and paddle video games. Merco's one of these companies that did that. They had a little bit of success in the cocktail pong market. We did a whole episode on pong and pong clones, so if you want to know what the cocktail pong market is, go ahead and check that one out. They made some quick cash in the cocktail pong market and were sticking with this business. Belota knew about them and said, you know, these guys might be interested. They've got some uh, savvy electronics people. They're new. They're just starting out. They'd probably be more amenable to contracting with another small company to use their technology, unlike one of these big Chicago firms. He kind of got them together. Merco was like, this is great. We'll do it. They licensed the system, and they released a game called Spirit of 76. Recall, this is 1975 when this is going on. For those of you who may not be aware, particularly our international listeners, the United States of America dates its founding to the Declaration of Independence, which was signed on July 4th, 1776. So 1976 was the bicentennial of the United States of America. We are such a young country, really, when you think about it in the grand scheme of life. So there was a lot 
of patriotism and Revolutionary War era interest and founding the country interest and founding father interest and all of this going on right at this time period in 1975, building up to the bicentennial in 1976. 1976-themed games were something that were happening. The spirit of 76 is a particularly American concept. It's the idea of the excitement around independence and the excitement around building this new, more perfect country and kind of government. I'm not making any kind of patriotic statement with that. I'm just defining what kind of this idea of the spirit of 76 means if you're not someone who's American and haven't grown up with this stuff rammed into your head. Whether it was really the start of a more perfect union or not is a topic for a completely different podcast from this one. So please don't take that as any kind of statement about America or its place in the world. There are actually two Spirit of 76 games as a result, which makes things kind of confusing because Gottlieb, one of the leaders, one of the big Chicago companies, also released a pinball machine at about the same time that they called the Spirit of 76 cashing in on this same patriotic fervor of the bicentennials. When Jeffrey looks for stuff in the show notes or when you listeners are looking for more information online after listening to this podcast, be aware that there is a Mirko Spirit of 76 and a Gottlieb Spirit of 76. They are different machines entirely. It's not like one is a license of the other. They're completely different machines. The Spirit of 76 from Gottlieb is a traditional electromechanical game. They did not license anything from Dave Nutting. They did not license anything from Mirko. Mirko created the Spirit of 76 that is a solid-state pinball machine under license of the technology from Dave Nutting Associates. They debut it at the MOA show, the Music Operators of America, the main coin-op trade show, in November 1975. It is one of the first two solid-state pinball machines ever made. It may be the very first one. But there was another one that was independently developed by Allied Leisure in Florida called Head On. It's possible that that one debuted first. It's one of those things where they're so close together. But at any rate, it's kind of the beginning of solid state pinball. Unfortunately, because the technology is so new and because Merco is a kind of small company, they have real problems manufacturing it. They start taking orders at the MOA in November. They get a few units out, then they have to completely halt production for several months. They're not able to start producing it again until March 1976. By then, even though a lot of people were excited about it at the MOA show, they're like, oh my gosh, this thing is never coming. It's been months. We haven't heard any updates. This is ridiculous. And so they end up with a lot of canceled orders. It sells very few units. The solid state revolution kind of begins with a whimper. They sell about 140 tables. This is right before pinball got to the point where machines were doing 10,000 and 15,000 unit runs. Still, a successful pinball table is going to sell at least two to 3,000 units. 140 units is really, really bad, and it's because of all the problems they had. It starts with a whimper, but then Bally gets into the game with their own system at the end of 76 into 77. Then Bally's early solid-state tables, which are not based on Nutting's technology, but are only done because of the work Nutting did. If Nutting hadn't done that work, Bally wouldn't have created their system. Their tables take the world by storm. Solid State 
pretty much overnight, replaces electromechanical and pinball. And for a brief period, pinball has its greatest run since the Great Depression in the period from late 1976 through 1979, after which a little game called Space Invaders comes along. And that's a whole other story that we've covered elsewhere. But still, this is a huge breakthrough in coin-operated games, in solid-state games, in pinball. It's all Dave Nutting. There were other companies that were doing prototypes at the same time. Atari was working on one. Ramtech was working on one. They didn't bring a system to market first. Dave Nutting did. So, I mean, that's a huge accomplishment right there. If he had done nothing else in the coin-op industry, that alone would have cemented his and Jeff Fredrickson's place as two of the most influential people in the business. But they didn't stop there, as we shall see. Otherwise, this would be a really short episode. Wouldn't it, though? Before we move on, though, I will say one other thing. I've been mentioning depositions a lot, where a lot of our info comes from. Briefly, just to explain why there are depositions on all of this. The solid-state stuff changed pinball overnight. Everyone knew they had to change with it. So Williams, we talked about this, I think, in our Williams episode, because we've done one of those. Williams realized they needed to get into solid-state, and they copied some of what Dave Nutting did to get there. Bally sued Williams for patent infringement because, flash forward, when this happened, by that time, Bally actually owned Dave Nutting Associates. We'll get there in our chronology. We're not there yet. They're still an independent company. Bally owned the patents at that point. They sued Williams. Williams would have probably gone out of business if they had lost the lawsuit because in this period of time, Williams was really down on their luck. They didn't have a lot of money, and they were looking at large damages for patent infringement. Rather stunningly, in the opinion of some observers of this trial, the judge in the case basically ruled that because there were so many solid-state projects going on at this time, because you had the Ramtech one, you had the Atari one, in addition to what Dave Nutting was doing, that solid-state was a natural evolution of the industry and therefore was not something that Bally could own a sole patent right to. So the judge actually ruled that there was no infringement by Williams. Because of that case, Bally v. Williams, that's why we have so much rich documentation on some of this Dave Nutting stuff and on early pinball prototypes, because that case was heard in federal court in Chicago. Our good friend of the show, Ethan Johnson, who's based there, went to the archives and pulled out the surviving documentation and got his court transcripts and depositions and all sorts of other good stuff out of there. It's a big part of what we know about Dave Nutting today. We've done this pinball technology. We've successfully licensed it to another company. What are we going to do now? Well, the logical thing to do, and the thing that Jeff Fredrickson decides to do, and this is really him driving this, we don't want to focus on Dave Nutting so much that we forget that Jeff Fredrickson is just as important and in some ways more important to this entire technological revolution than Dave himself is. Jeff Fredrickson decides the next logical thing to do is apply this microprocessor stuff to video games. Despite the fact that Pong blew up really big in 1973, Dave Nutting never really got into video games, even though he was doing all of this solid-state research. There is some conflicting information that they may have done a ball-and-paddle game in the wake of Pong. Keith Egging, who was an employee of the company, goes so far as to remember them actually releasing a Pong clone and selling a small number of units. 
I really don't think he's right about that. Milwaukee Coin Industry was covered by the trades. The trades announced their new products. The trades were pretty good at announcing new products generally. If there had been a Milwaukee Coin Industries and MCI Pong unit, we'd know about it. They were a manufacturer. They weren't just developing for other companies. I mean, it's theoretically possible you could say, well, maybe they just did the work on one and somebody else released it. Okay, maybe, but that's not what MCI did. Dave Nutting Associates did that. MCI didn't do that. I think he's misremembering. They probably fooled around with some Pong. Maybe they even put a unit out on test. Who knows? But nobody else remembers that they actually released a Pong, and there's no record of it. The weekly coin-op trades, particularly Cashbox, were pretty good at identifying the games that were coming out. If they had released one, it would have been covered. So I don't think they did. It would have been covered. Someone would have had a copy of it. Right, you would think, because none have turned up either. I think that's probably not correct. They didn't really get involved in the video game industry. Now, this seems like the perfect opportunity to get involved. We've talked about this a little bit in some of our more general video game episodes. Of course, all video games were solid state. You can't do that analog. Occasionally, certain components of it, like the sound, are analog, but it's impossible without electronics. Early video games were done entirely through transistor-to-transistor logic, integrated circuits. They were chips, but they weren't microprocessors. They weren't computational chips. They were memory chips of various types. You were building logic gates entirely through hardware. There was no software. You can only get a game to a certain level of complexity doing this. Because every single game feature that you want to implement requires its own circuit in order to implement. If you had a game like Atari's Indy 800 which was a driving game that allowed for eight players. Each one of those racers, each one of those cars, needs its own set of circuits defining how they work. Even though they're essentially identical objects, to get each one of them up on the screen requires their own set of circuits. So that game had like eight circuit boards in it because it was essentially eight games in one to get eight cars on the screen. You had to take the same game, duplicate it eight times, add in maybe another board somewhere in order to take control of all eight or some combination thereof in order to say who's the winner. Right. I mean, I don't know exactly how it worked. You know, that might not be a perfect explanation, but it at least gives us an idea of what we're talking about here. As games got more complex, as there were more objects on the screen, as they were trying to incorporate more hardware-driven artificial intelligence as they were getting more complex rules and more complex game states. You had to create bigger and bigger boards, and you had to put more and more individual boards into one game. So you're starting to get the same problem that you get in non-solid-state pinball and electromechanical pinball. You don't have the rat's nest. Though you do have a small rat's nest because you have to connect these boards to each other. (laughs) But you get to a point where the more parts you have, the more complexity you have, the more things can go wrong, the more things can break. And heaven help you if you get an electric shock that goes through that board. Right. 
you also just have the ever-increasing cost because the more elements you put in, the more silicon you need, the more boards you need, that's your component cost going up and up and up. The industry was fast approaching the point where they could not create more complex games through hardware. There was just a hard wall there where the size of the boards, the number of chips, and everything else was just this brick wall that you ran into and you could not go further. Jeff Fredrickson saw this, he recognized this, and he also immediately saw that the microprocessor can solve a lot of this problem by bringing a lot of that into software instead of hardware. Way fewer chips, way fewer circuits, not fewer logic gates, because obviously microprocessors with Moore's Law get to the point where they have exponentially increasing number of logic gates, but fewer discrete logic gates built out of chains of components all on one little microchip instead of tons and tons of different microchips. He decides that he's going to take his pinball technology and he's going to apply it to video. Now, initially, he tries to do that with his pinball system, and that just does not work because that is the 4004 4-bit microprocessor from Intel. Driving a display takes just a little more horsepower uh, than a four, a little old 4-bit microprocessor can accomplish. So he switches to the Intel 8080, which is their second-generation 8-bit processor. They did the 8008 uh, or 8008 first. It had some flaws to it that made it kind of slow and clunky. The 8080 fixed a lot of that and was the first chip that Intel released that was really a practical computer microprocessor or display microprocessor. So he does a system around the 8080 that is a complete bit-mapped system, which is actually kind of inefficient for early video games, but that's the way he thought to do it. Of course, a lot of early games as the industry developed used sprite-based systems, used sprite hardware, where instead of redrawing an entire screen all of the time, you predefine a certain block of pixels that can be 4x4, 8x8, 16x16, whatever size you want to make them, whatever you can do with your available memory. You have a predefined block of pixels that can be moved and updated independently of the entire display which means that they can move around faster and easier and with less intensive processing <laughs> power required to do so. A bitmapped screen, which is what Fredrickson came up with, every time you make a change to the state of that screen, you are updating the entire screen. What you're doing is you are providing complete instructions for which pixels of your display to turn on and off in each frame then you are storing that in RAM as what's called a bitmap, which then provides the instructions for the CRT to actually draw that image on the screen. So you've always got your active bitmap that's up, and then you're preparing the next bitmap in memory that'll replace it in the next cycle, etc., etc. In order to move any objects around, you have to update the entire screen. You can't do an interrupt and have the sprites independently update from the rest of the display. But he creates this full bitmap system, which is RAM-intensive, because each one of those on-offs, and it is a black-and-white system initially, it's not color, but you basically need one bit per pixel of memory to draw that entire screen, and that's what's called your frame buffer. 
it's memory intensive. It requires a lot of RAM, but it allows you to do all of this drawing of graphics and whatnot in software instead of in hardware. He creates this microprocessor-driven system based around the 8080. He creates a maze game, a little maze generation program to test it out, where it randomly generates a maze on the screen, a pretty complex one. Then, you know, you try to get out of it within a time limit, navigate out of the maze. It seems to be working pretty well, and so they go to Bally again (laughs) and say, look what we've done now. Remember how we made that solid-state pinball system? Now we've made a microprocessor-driven video game hardware system. Bally's like, interesting, because you know, we've got this issue right now. We've got this game we've licensed from Japan called Western Gun. We kind of like it, but the graphics are really squished and blocky. The gameplay's not the smoothest. We've been thinking that maybe we don't actually want to release this game as it is. Do you think maybe you could do something with this? with your microprocessor-based hardware system. So they're like, sure, we'll do that. So that becomes their first project. Fredrickson knows a little bit of programming, but he is still primarily a hardware engineer. Dave Nutting, as we talked about in our first episode, doesn't know anything about either of these things, hardware or software. So they're going to need some new staff to actually program these video games. They go to the University of Wisconsin. Fredrickson went to school there. There's actually an AI laboratory there working with computers run by a guy named Richard Northhouse. They go to Richard Northhouse and they say, hey, we got this thing. We need programmers. Do you have some bright students or graduate students that you could throw our way that maybe would like to earn some money making games with us? Northhouse was like, sure. He sends them a couple of his graduate students one of whom doesn't last very long, decides not to do it, and the other one by the name of Tom McHugh, who becomes their first programmer. Then, within pretty close proximity to that, he sends them another programmer, Jamie Fenton. Just to be clear for historical accuracy, Jamie Fenton, at the time of the events in question, presented as male and was known by the name Jay Fenton. She did all of her work in the video game industry under that name, which is why it's appropriate to mention it. We're not bringing up a dead name that never had any relation to the historical record. We will call her Jamie out of respect for the remainder of the episode, just in case people are trying to look up historical resources after the fact. It is important to get names that were present at the time of the materials in question. Jamie Fenton, another student of Richard Northhouse, also joins. She and Tom become the two programmers for Dave Nutting Associates. Tom McHugh, the first one to arrive, is the one that works on this Western gun concept. He is not in any way a game designer. Ethan Johnson has also interviewed him. He was just a pure programmer. So Dave Nutting is the one that did the game design on Gunfight. He's the one that said, I want the screen to look like this. I want the gameplay like this. I want that there, that there. This is what happens when this happens. This is what happens when that happens. Then Tom McHugh was the one who actually did the programming to make that all happen. Working together, they create a new version of Western Gun, which they call Gunfight. It's two cowboys on opposite sides of the screen. 
rather than the squashed images of the cowboys and western gun. They are tall and human proportioned, albeit still barely more than stick figures in terms of their sophistication. You have two controls. You have a joystick and a lever, one of which moves your gun up and down, the other which moves your character. There are obstacles that will appear in the middle of the screen at various times, cacti, stagecoaches drive by, etc. You need to try to shoot your counterpart on the other side of the screen before they shoot you. Every time you shoot the other guy, you get a point. Most points wins. Gunfight, just a kind of classic one-on-one dueling game powered by a microprocessor. We've actually brought this game up before in another episode. Absolutely, because we talked about some of this stuff in Nishikado and uh, who was the creator of Western Gun and all of this stuff. It debuts at the MOA in late 1975. It becomes a major hit. Midway sells about 8,600 of them. Midway being the Bally subsidiary that actually releases video games. Bally always at Midway do that. That 8,600 figure is straight from Midway at the time, so it's a pretty solid figure. 8600 was a big success in that time frame, so it was a massive hit. It was probably the very first microprocessor-driven video game. It's one of the only one of these firsts that is held up over many years. If you ask someone 15 or 20 years ago what the first this or what the first that was in video games, the answers that the average enthusiast would have given you back then that were considered the common knowledge answers were proven completely wrong by subsequent research that would always find this or that thing that snuck in right before. Gunfight is still most likely first. There is only one other game that has been unearthed that could have technically beaten it by days or weeks. That's our old friends Mirko again, who did the Spirit of 76 Pinball. They did a video game, not with nutting, this was completely on their own, called PT-109, which was a dueling game with ships. PT-109 is a particular kind of warship from World War II. PT-109 specifically was the ship commanded by John F. Kennedy that made him famous when he became a hero, when it sank and everything. That's why the name PT-109. They did that game at about the same time as Midway and DNA did Gunfight. They both premiered at that same MOA show. Premiering at the MOA show doesn't mean you're actually shipping to the public yet. That's a trade show where people see the games that are coming out and decide what orders they want to place. We know they both debuted at the show. The question of which one was actually shipped first, which one was on the marketplace first, we have no idea, and it's probably impossible to tell at this point. The only way would be if, miraculously, some Merco corporate documents and some Midway corporate documents appeared that each had the date that they started shipping. And while that's not 100% impossible, it's very improbable that that will ever happen. Even if PT-109 did beat it by a matter of days or weeks, Gunfight was still by far the biggest success. PT-109 just kind of vanished. Merco, as we mentioned with Spirit of 76, they're a small company. They don't have robust distribution. So Gunfight, even if it's technically not the very first, it's still okay to refer to it as the first because it's the game that made the splash, it's the game that made the impact, and it's very possible it was the first one to ship too. It's just, it's close between those two. It's the one that popularized the entire concept. Exactly. So again, another huge breakthrough by Dave Nutting and Jeff Fredrickson. They do the first solid-state pinball, then they do the first microprocessor-driven video game. But they're not done yet. Really? Now they take this hardware that they did with Gunfight 
1976, now that they have both McHugh and Fenton on staff, they have a lot of programming talent, they release four more games in 1976 using this same basic hardware. One of them is that maze prototype that I talked about before that Jeff Fredrickson did when he was putting the system together. They finish it, clean it up, and release it under the name The Amazing Maze. Another thing that they do is an update of Midway's baseball game. Midway already had a baseball video game that they had released. It was actually licensed from Ramtech. They didn't create it internally. They had a baseball game that they had done a couple of years before, and so now they had Nutting do a sequel or an update to it with the microprocessor system under the name Tornado Baseball. It's a pretty basic game, but, you know, it's microprocessor-driven. It's cool. It's better than the original that was all TTL hardware. One very cool thing that they do with it is this is a period of time when graphics were still very minimal because you only had so much processing power, only had so much memory, only had so much resolution. There's only so much you could do graphically. I'm sure Jeffrey will put Tornado Baseball into the show notes. It's out there. That's easy enough to do. If you just see an emulated version of it, something from MAME, then all you see is black and white graphics, there's a baseball diamond, there's baseball players, etc. Very rudimentary. What they actually did to provide more graphical interest than you could get at the time, here's Dave using his old industrial design experience, bringing that to the forefront. They actually sculpted a baseball diamond, and then they recessed the monitor into the bottom of the cabinet. Then, through the use of mirrors, they projected the video image on top of this sculptured baseball diamond. So it has this actually elaborate color background of a baseball diamond that you don't get to experience if you just emulate the game because it's not an electronic component at all. It's literally a sculpted baseball diamond. Sort of similar to how, say, with Space Invaders, it has more visual interest in some of the earlier cabinets because they put an overlay and then projected the image on top of that, and you had an overlay that was, here's your planet, here's your star field, here's some other stuff. The game itself is just what you expect from Space Invaders because it has that background that is projected on top of it because of the trick with mirrors. It looks way, way better. Exactly. Yeah, Space Invaders is another great example of that. Dave Nutting did it before that. I mean, he did it earlier, and Ishikado was greatly influenced by Dave Nutting Associates' work when he did Space Invaders. He might have taken that mirroring trick from them as well, though mirrors had been used in electromechanical coin-op games for a long time, too, so he didn't necessarily borrow that from Dave Nutting. Still, Dave Nutting was one of the first to do that with a video game. So that's pretty cool innovation. At the end of the year, they did a first-person driving game called 280 Zap. It was based on a German game. There's kind of a long story behind it. I don't really want to go into all the details there right in this episode, but there was a German game. It was not microprocessor-driven. It was produced in very limited quantities. A couple of American companies learned that it existed in Europe and decided to knock it off. One of those companies actually licensed the game to Midway, a company called Micronetics that was running out of money, and so they started the process of engineering it, but then they licensed it to Midway. Midway decided to redo it with the microprocessor. DNA did that. 
It was called 280 Zap because they actually concluded a licensing deal with Datsun. People today would know that company as Nissan. Back then, the name of the company was Datsun. They had a car called the 280Z, so they licensed that car from Datsun and called the game 280 Zap. So they did that, and then the big hit of the year was a submarine game called Seawolf. We brought up Seawolf a few times. We have, and we'll bring it up in context again here. Submarine games have been around for a long time. The first implementation of this, a classic implementation of this, was actually done by Bally way back in 1946, called Undersea Raider. Footage of that does exist. I think we even put some of that footage in one of our other show notes, but we can do so again. I always like making more work for Jeffrey on show notes. I'm sure future me is crying on the inside. (laughs) Of course, reached a far more advanced form with Namco and Sega's Periscope games in the 60s. These are games where you're looking through a periscope, lining up shots on targets, a simulated torpedo skims across the water, and you're trying to hit the targets that are going by on a little motor carriage, motorized carriage on the other side of the cabinet. The idea to do this as a video game actually initiated with Joe Robbins of Empire Distributing, who we mentioned before, Empire being the big distributor that is also owned by Bally. Joe Robbins suggested to Dave that they make a submarine game, that he thought that they were kind of overdue for that, and the technology was such that they could do a decent approximation of some of these old electromechanical games like Periscope and Undersea Raider. This was, again, a collaboration between Dave and Tom McHugh. It worked the exact same way, where Dave did all of the design of it, Tom McHugh did all of the programming of it. This is another one that you can play it in MAME, but again, if you play it in MAME, you miss some of the features. The very basics of it is that you're peering through a periscope, and there was an actual faux periscope on the cabinet. You're lining up on targets, and when you fire, there's a uh, torpedo that shoots up from the bottom of the screen, goes up vertically to try to hit targets moving along the top of the screen. There are different planes of targets, and targets on different parts of the screen move faster than others, and the targets that move faster, you get more points for destroying them, and it's a scoring game. They don't shoot back at you. It's a shooting gallery kind of game, just like the original Periscope was. If you play it in MAME, that's all you see is just the ships and your missiles colliding. Again, they included some elements that were electromechanical rather than electronic within the game itself. There's a targeting reticule that appears within the periscope that you you don't get if you emulate it. And there are explosion graphics that were done using lights rather than through computer graphics. So you don't see all of that. There's also the sonar sound, which I'm not sure that MAME emulates properly either. The sound on a lot of these early microprocessor-based games were still being done through hardware rather than through software. MAME tries to emulate sound on particular games sometimes, but it literally has to be programmed in by someone working in MAME. It has to be recreated because these were done in hardware, not software. In fact, MAME has sound in Gunfight that is not supposed to be in Gunfight. They put music in Gunfight that's actually not in Gunfight. It's in the sequel, Boot Hill, that had the music. Sound emulation on early microprocessor stuff in MAME is kind of tricky, is the moral of that story. Seawolf does 10,000 units, which is over-the-moon amazing. It's by far the best-selling video game that Midway has ever done and will remain their best-selling video game till 
Space Invaders takes the world by storm four years later. It actually re-enters production at one point after being out of production because the demand is so great for it, they decide to do another production run. It is the biggest game of 1976. That's also one of the biggest games in 1977 because it just keeps on earning at arcades. It is a big deal. Even in 1978, it's still a pretty big earner. Huge, huge game. Kind of forgotten a little bit today just because everything between Pong and Space Invaders has largely been forgotten with the exception of Breakout. It's kind of the one that people remember that isn't Pong. It was absolutely monumental in its day. And again, it was another uh, Dave Nutting production uh, with Tom McHugh on the programming using Jeff Fredrickson's hardware. Big stuff. So that's 1976 for the company. It's a big year. It's such a big year and such a success for Midway that Midway decides to buy the company, or rather Bally, which is the parent of Midway, decides to buy the company. In 1977, Bally purchases Dave Nutting Associates. Dave Nutting Associates actually moves from Milwaukee to Arlington Heights, Chicago suburb, in order to be closer to Midway, since they're basically one of the prime video game developers for Midway now. They retain their independence as an organization within the Bally Group. It's not like Dave Nutting suddenly answers to Hank Ross or David Morofsky at Midway. They move a little closer and they're actually owned by them. So now, at this point, they will only supply games to Midway. Other than Spirit of 76 to Mirko, they had only supplied games to Bally anyway, but now they absolutely are only going to be providing games to Bally and Midway. Tom McHugh, at that point, doesn't want to move to Chicago. He actually stays behind in Milwaukee and works remotely. He still works with the company for a few more years, but declines to join them. Jamie Fenton does come along and stays with them, and they start hiring other programmers and hardware engineers as well and expanding a little bit now that they've had these big successful games and have a new big corporate partner. Where do you go from there? Jeff Fredrickson has another brilliant brainstorm after that one. He put a microprocessor in a pinball machine, and that was great. Then he put a microprocessor in a video game, and that was great too. But early microprocessors only have so much capability. You're still driving a lot of what goes on outside of the microprocessor. You still need specialized circuits to do a lot of the graphic stuff. You still need specialized circuits to do control interfaces. You still need specialized circuits to do the sound. It's not all software yet. This period, it's kind of a hybrid between a hardware and a software solution. I mean, Technically, obviously, any software solution also has a hardware component because the hardware is what the software runs on. But what I mean is you still have to have really specialized hardware to do some of these activities that a full software system would not require. You're still not pushing everything through that microprocessor. You can't take off-the-shelf parts, throw it together, and have something viable and working. I just can't go to some store, buy some 8080 processors, buy some speakers, buy some basic breadboards, wire some things up, code some things on there, and have a video game, have a pinball table, something like that. I have to have specialized electronic components in order to properly accomplish anything meaningful. Exactly. That's the perfect way to put it. He decides, what if I went a step further and created a complete 
system hardware where I have a microprocessor at the heart, but then I also have just a couple of custom chips that do almost all the rest of the work. They didn't call them this back then, but basically having a GPU to do the graphics, have a specific chip maybe dedicated to sound, just pull all of this stuff on just a small number of microchips and create a true system that has a relatively small number of components. Sort of a prototype or concept motherboard. Exactly. That's exactly what he's doing. So he contracts with a company called AMI, which incidentally also implemented the chip that Atari designed for its home Pong system. They're a company that specialized in doing contract work for manufacturers that needed custom chips. He goes to AMI and he works with AMI to create a, I think, three-chip set that will be a complete video game system hardware. It's the first system hardware, I think, really in existence. We talked about this concept of system hardware in the context of arcades after the crash, also in the concept of uh, some of the Atari arcade stuff in the 80s at Atari games. Early video games, including video games well past 1977-78 when Fredrickson is implementing this, that's how far ahead of his time Fredrickson was. He was like a half decade ahead of most people. Most early video games, you built a hardware, even if you used a microprocessor, even if you were doing a lot of programming, you built a hardware that was specific to a specific game you wanted to make. Then to get maximum use out of that board, you might make a sequel or two, or you might make a game that was very similar but slightly different on that same hardware. Basically, Every time you were making a new big game, a new game that you thought was going to be a major release that sold lots of units, you would construct a completely new custom hardware for that new game. The idea of system hardware, which Fredrickson is pretty much the first person to do, I'm pretty sure, in video games. I'm always cautious about firsts, but he seems to pretty much be first. The idea of a system hardware is you have a very flexible very general purpose video game system, which you're able to do because you're concentrating most of the capability into a small set of chips rather than a large number of circuits, then you use that for a bunch of games. Obviously, you replace it eventually because Moore's Law tells us that everything's going to go obsolete eventually. You use that for a bunch of major games over the course of two, three, four years before you replace it with a more advanced hardware system. He kind of was most of the way there with Gunfight already, because the same system that was used in Gunfight was also used for Seawolf and the other 1976 releases. By creating the other chips in this new, more advanced chipset, he's taken that a step further and is really inventing system hardware here. I mean, it's really another huge leap by DNA in the early days of video games. They used this system to make sequels to Gunfight and Seawolf. The Gunfight sequel is called Boot Hill. It has music, like I said, which the original didn't. It had slightly better graphics, and they did that whole sculpted scenery thing again that they did on Tornado Baseball, where they sculpted a western town and then imposed the computer graphics on top of it. The Seawolf sequel is called Seawolf 2. Unlike the original, it's in full color, and it also is able to have more objects on the screen at once, more things that you can shoot at, because it has the more advanced hardware. He also decides that since he's got this relatively condensed hardware system 
and relatively cheap, comparably speaking, it's still very expensive, but relatively cheap hardware system compared to his original system because there's smaller amount of components, we might as well turn this into a home system of some kind as well. Hello, console. Yes, he leads the design of a console. He doesn't create it all by himself. There's a team. A guy named Terry Coleman does a lot of the hardware. Jamie Fenton, who we talked about before, headed up software development. And there were a few other programmers, including Alan McNeil, who would later be famous for doing Berserk for Stern, were involved in various aspects of the software. They built a console system that he also decided it was powerful enough, we might as well include the capability to turn it into a full-fledged home computer because home computers are just starting to hit now. This is the period of time when the Apple II and the TRS-80 are being released and the idea of computers for the home is starting to pick up steam. They create this system that's very powerful for the time. It's powered by a Z80 processor which is essentially an improved version of the 8080. I think I've mentioned this in other episodes, but the creator of the 8080 at Intel, Federico Fagin, after creating that chip, decided to go off and found his own company called Zilog. He created the Z80 chip, which was backward compatible with the 8080 and is basically an extension of that chip, a better, more powerful version. This is why before the IBM PC came along, You actually didn't see Intel chips used as microprocessors for a lot of systems back in this time period because people didn't want to use the 8080 processor as their 8-bit processor. They wanted to use the Z80 because it was better. So the Z80 proliferated, but it's a descendant of the 8080. So it's got a powerful Z80 processor in it. It has that custom graphics chip that we previously talked about. It has a whopping... I'm not saying this sarcastically. For the time, it really is whopping 4K of RAM. Remember, the Atari VCS that was released in the same time period had 128 bytes of RAM. Computers in this period of time generally had about 8K of RAM. The Apple II, the TRS-80, even though some of these computers also offered a 4K configuration, realistically, you needed 8K to do anything with them. So 4K for a video game system is pretty darn impressive. The reason they were able to do that, I interviewed Jamie Fenton, and she told me the reason that they were able to do that is because since they had this bitmapped arcade system that required a lot of RAM to do the frame buffer, they were actually one of the biggest purchasers of RAM in the world in this period of time. Because they purchased so much RAM, they were able to get a really good price on it. That allowed them to put 4K of RAM in the system with expandability even beyond that at a relatively reasonable price for the time period. I mean, let's not get carried away there. It was still expensive, but it was cheaper than the competition could do. And so they had well more RAM in their system than other video game systems at the time. Really quite impressive. Of course, it was a full bitmapped screen because it's the same hardware as the arcade hardware and that hardware is bitmapped. It had a large color palette of 256 colors, which was, again, just phenomenal for that time. It could do full color at uh, what they called low resolution of 160 by 102. It could also do uh, high-resolution graphics, high-resolution at the time being 320 by 204, which obviously is nowhere near high-resolution today, but there you have it. 
it could only do a smaller number of colors at that higher resolution because, of course, every single one of those pixels requires memory. When you have multiple colors, that requires even more bits per pixel. So you're talking about exponentially increasing amount of RAM needed, which is why in the early days, a lot of systems, computers and consoles, would have a low-resolution mode where you could do lots of colors and a high-resolution mode where you could do very few colors is because you're balancing the memory requirements and the cost of the system. Yeah, it's really impressive. And then it had expandability. They were planning to release a tape drive and a keyboard and all of this to turn it into a computer. Of course, they present this thing to Bally. I mean, they're owned by Bally. Bally is suitably impressed by this and sees a market for it and decides they're going to run with it. Remember, Bally is a coin-operated game manufacturer. They're not a consumer company. They have recently experimented with home pinball. Pinball had become so popular after the advent of Solid State that some people were starting to buy them for the home despite their expense. Bally jumped into that market and started working on pinball games that were kind of tailored for the home so they could be a little cheaper and a little less bulky. In fact, Jamie Fenton's first project at Dave Nutting Associates was to work on a home pinball machine before she went on to do some program work on Amazing Maze and 280 Zap and a game released in 1977 called Desert Gun. They were kind of getting into the home a little bit, but they had no experience in the home. They did put together a Bally consumer division, and this was through Bally, not through Midway. They actually hired a guy named Bob Wiles to run it, who was the original project manager on the Magnavox Odyssey, though he was no longer the manager by the time Magnavox released it. They got someone that had experience in the uh, television business, consumer business. They made an agreement with Montgomery Ward, department store, to release the system through their stores. They made a deal with a catalog company, a mail-order company called JSNA that did novelty electronic products via mail-order, via catalog, to release it through their catalog, and they were going to release it in 1977. Unfortunately, as is always the case in this time period, and as we've discussed many times before, they ran afoul of a little organization called the FCC. The radiation standards were very, very strict back then. It was almost impossible for any company to get a video game system or home computer released without packing a ridiculous amount of shielding into the thing. Ridiculous amounts of shielding. In the case of the uh, Bally Home Computer Library, which is what Bally was calling the system that Fredrickson and his team created, this extra shielding caused a wee bit of an overheating problem for the chips. That meant that the system basically didn't work right anymore. They had to scrap a 1977 release. Montgomery Ward canceled their order. JSNA stayed on board, but they couldn't start shipping to anybody until 78. It missed 77. It was ridiculously expensive. It was a $300 system, which was $100 more than the VCS. You did get a lot of power for that $100 more, but that's equivalent to about $1,200 in today's money. It was too expensive to be a game console, but at the end of the day, it was not as powerful as an Apple II or a TRS-80 to be a home computer. It just kind of fell in the cracks. We could do a whole episode on the Astrocade. Maybe someday we will, as it was finally called in the end. 
I don't want to go into huge amount of details on it now because you really could do a whole episode on it. But just suffice it to say that this was the natural extension of Jeff Fredrickson's arcade hardware, which they then tried to bring into the home, which Bally missed the boat on for a variety of technical and cost reasons, which they ended up selling to another company that kept it going as the Astrocade for a few years longer, but it never had much of an impact. Still, that's another thing that we can say the Dave Nutting people did. Then Space Invaders comes along and changes everything. Dave Nutting's prominence really falls by the wayside a little bit at that point after Space Invaders' release. At this point, Midway is doing a lot more business with Japanese companies. They license Space Invaders, they license Galaxian, they license Pac-Man. Because they have all of this Japanese product coming in, they don't necessarily need as much domestic product to keep the factory going. They also decide to found an internal game development group at Midway. So DNA is making games for Midway, but it's still a separate company. In late 1981 or so, Midway establishes its own game development team, division, within the company. Dave Nutting Associates is getting crowded out a little bit. They're not really as important to the success of Midway as a video game company as they were in the 70s with games like Seawolf. Probably the two most important games that they make during this time period both come in the kind of 1980-81 period. The first of those is Gorf, which comes out in mid-1981. It is definitely the most notable thing that Jamie Fenton did. Gorf is a fixed shooter in the vein of a Space Invaders or a Galaxian. The very interesting thing about it is that it is just about the first game, one of the very first games that has multiple stages. It is not the very first. There were certainly some Japanese games, even as early as 1979, that had different waves of enemies. They weren't really identifiable as separate stages because it's all just set in space against a black background. It's just that you would face successive waves of enemies that were slightly different from each other. That's kind of a precursor to stages. Konami's game Scramble probably also released before Gorf did. Scramble also had distinct stages, though there were no breaks between the stages. You just scrolled directly in from one to the next. Gorf was under development at the same time as Scramble, so they came up with this idea in Parallel Evolution, but I think Scramble made it to market first. Gorf, unlike these earlier wave or stage-based games, was the first one that separated stages. We do this stage and you clear it, and then there's a pause, and then the next stage comes up on the screen, and, you know, as opposed to Scramble, which is continuous, or as opposed to the wave-based shooters where the scenery doesn't change at all, the gameplay doesn't change at all, it's just the ships are a little different the next time around. This came directly from Jamie Fenton's background, because Jamie Fenton was actually really into both theaters and computers. She actually wanted to be a film major when she went to college, but a cinematography class that she needed to take was full, and so she took a computer class instead and got hooked on the whole computer thing and got very interested in how you could meld 
theater and film with video games. And she even did a project in the drama department where she used a computer for something and she had to literally wheel the big mini computer across campus to to give her presentation. She got very interested in this in college at Wisconsin and then fell in with Richard Northhouse and his AI lab and the rest is history. Midway was looking for something to top Space Invaders and Galaxian, two Japanese games that they had released. They had the North American rights to. Jamie was thinking about how she could tell a story over the course of multiple screens, as befit her film and theater background. Originally, she was supposed to do a Star Trek game that they were going to license Star Trek the Motion Picture and do that. But then Star Trek the Motion Picture came out. Anyone who has seen Star Trek the Motion Picture knows that it doesn't really lend itself to an action game. It does lend itself to at least 10 minutes of going into a cloud. That is a movie where you can see how the world had changed because they were going all 2001 in a world that only wanted Star Wars. But that's a completely different topic and a completely different podcast. The point is... Star Trek, the motion picture, did not lend itself to action, so they scrapped that. They still needed something, and she thought it would be a great idea to have a progression of stages. So there are actually five screens to it, and they are fundamentally different from each other. They have different names. Even though Scramble kind of had stages first, this is really the idea of distinct zones and distinct places of action is something that is very much something that Gorf did first, at least in the coin-operated game space. The first stage was called Astro Battles. It was a Space Invaders clone. The only difference is that instead of bunkers, you have a force field that is projected over your ship. It fulfills a similar role as the bunkers, and they used the original Space Invaders aliens because they had the North American license to Space Invaders so they could do that. It wasn't a violation. The second stage was called Laser Attack, It's set in space, so you have a progression. Astro Battles is you defending a planet, just like in Space Invaders. Then in Laser Attack, you're taking to space, and you have to battle formations of enemies. Stage 3 is Galaxians. It's called Galaxians, and it's basically just Galaxian again, with a couple just minor differences. Then the fourth stage is Space Warp, which is enemies flying out from the center of the screen and trying to shoot down or collide with your ship. So it's a slightly different perspective. And then the fifth and final stage is called Flagship. It's a big giant ship that has a force field around it that you have to break through the force field and destroy the ship. It's a little Enterprise-like because, you know, this originally started out as a Star Trek, the motion picture thing. You have a progression. You start on your planet defending, then you move into space, move deeper into space, take a wormhole to find the enemy's mothership, and then destroy the mothership. There's no cutscenes. There's no story text. The story is entirely still in the imagination of the player, but there's a sense of progression and a sense of moving through different gameplays that is pretty new and hasn't been done very often yet in video games. That's a pretty big deal. It's a decent-sized hit. It sells about 26,000 units which is not a Space Invader size hit. It's not a Defender size hit. Those are selling 50, 60. Pac-Man, of course, sells 100 almost. It's not that size hit, but 26,000 is still good for the time period. That is still a decent hit. Probably the biggest hit that Dave Nutting Associates ever did. I would say that Seawolf 
was a bigger hit in terms of its impact at the time. Even though it sold fewer units, it was selling into a smaller market and it dominated that market more. Gorf was probably their biggest hit in terms of raw unit sales, though in terms of overall impact, not as big as Seawolf. The other game was another Dave Nutting, Tom McHugh collaboration with McHugh working remotely (laughs) because I remember he declined to move to Arlington Heights. It's a game called Wizard of War. Wizard of War is pretty much entirely based on Alien. But wait, Alex, there's a wizard. That doesn't make any sense. If you remember, one of the core elements of the original Alien movie, which of course is more of a horror movie in space as opposed to Aliens in the 80s, which is a pure action movie, one of the key ways that Ridley Scott created tension in that movie is they had these motion trackers. The alien is moving all around the ship. It's in the ductwork, it's in the pipes, it's in whatever. They never really see it, but they can track where it is using the motion tracker. And so there'll be times where they can see that the alien's getting closer to them on the tracker and they know it's getting closer, but they can't see it. And that's what creates the tension. Dave Nutting liked that idea and wanted to create a game that recreated that same feeling of tension. He also wanted a game that could be played by two players because so many video games at this time were one-player games, or if it was a multiplayer game, it was a game where you took turns playing rather than playing at the same time. Wizard of War is a maze game where the players have to navigate through a maze and kill all of the enemies inside of it. They have a radar at the bottom of the screen that shows them where things are in the maze, but it doesn't portray the maze. It just shows the spots where the enemies are. Then they have a limited field of view within the maze itself to see things. Several of the enemies have the ability to turn invisible, and when they turn invisible, you can't see them in the maze anymore but you can still see them on the radar. So they're recreating that alien tension effect with the motion tracker within this game. Wizard of War is not nearly as big a hit as Gorf is, but it's also a fairly successful game. I mean, it gets ported to uh, home systems and whatnot, which is always a sign that it did okay. And it's kind of the last important video game that Dave Nutting himself works on. It's released a couple of months after Gorf is in the summer of 1981. If you go on the internet, you'll see most places saying that the game was a 1980 game, but even though they probably did a lot of the work in 1980, it definitely released in 81. We have trade publications now. We can see when games were announced. These were kind of the two games they did in 1981. After that, they really start falling off even more. Again, they're being crowded out, really, by the Japanese, by internal developments at Midway. There's just so many people making games that there's less of a space for them to make an impact. Jamie Fenton tries to create a follow-up to Gorf that they call Ms. Gorf. They call it that kind of tongue-in-cheek because Ms. Pac-Man had happened. So Pac-Man, Ms. Pac-Man, Gorf, Ms. Gorf. They try to do that. It doesn't get off the ground. Then she does a game called Adventures of Robbie Roto, which comes out in 1982 It's kind of trying to capitalize a little bit on the whole Pac-Man thing because it's a maze game with a cute character at the heart of it. 
again, you'll see a lot of references online to it coming out in 81, but that's wrong. It, it came out in 82. It's kind of a Dig Dug style game where you're digging in the dirt and creating tunnels as you go, though it has some added complexity over what Dig Dug has in it. It's kind of interesting, but it didn't do very well. It was complex for the time, and Dave Nutting himself feels that that complexity may have been a part of the reason why it didn't end up hitting so well. They were also contracted to get in on the whole Pac-Man craze, because, of course, Midway wanted all Pac-Man all the time after the success of Pac-Man. They actually ended up doing a video game pinball hybrid called Baby Pac-Man, where up top there's a video game monitor and you guide Pac-Man or Baby Pac-Man around in the way that you normally would. But then at times your character gets transported down to the lower play field, which is a standard kind of pinball format. And then you play a game of pinball and that's how you can power up your character, the equivalent of the power pellets in the original Pac-Man. You can also get collectibles in there like the fruit in the original Pac-Man. It's a pinball game. I mean, it's not a video pinball game. It's an actual pinball game. I have actually played this game. It is interesting. (laughs) Yeah, and it didn't quite work out, really. It's too much division of action. They didn't do a good job of unifying the video game action up top and the pinball action down below, so it just ends up being two halves of a game that don't quite work together. They do that one, but I think at the end of the day, they're just getting kind of pushed out by all the other players in the field. Then, of course, right after that, the crash happens. In 1984, Bally makes the decision to shut Dave Nutting Associates down entirely because revenues are down, video's not doing so well, and it's not like DNA's last few games had been that successful anyway. I mean, Gorf and Wizard of War in 1981 were kind of their last hurrah. The stuff they did in 82 and 83, they also did a quiz game called Professor Pac-Man, and the the less said about that, the better. They just weren't doing very well anymore in 82, 83. Again, I think just getting crowded out. Despite their rather ignominious end, which was also the end of Dave Nutting's time in video games, he went on to continue to have a very happy, fruitful, profitable life. He just didn't do it in video games anymore. Despite that ignominious end, there's no doubting that This is one of the true pioneers, and whether it's the first solid-state pinball system, the first microprocessor-driven video game system, the first real system hardware, or even something less broadly expansive but still interesting, like one of the very first games with uh, distinct stages in GORF, there's no denying that Dave Nutting and Jeff Fredrickson and Jamie Fenton and all the people at Nutting Industries, Milwaukee Coin Industries, and Dave Nutting Associates had a huge impact on the way the video game industry developed in the 70s and 80s. It's very rare that you have someone like this who touches nearly the entire video game industry where they touch the arcade, they touch into the computer and the home console. Maybe not directly as far as releasing something, but their influence is certainly felt. Absolutely. We have to leave Dave behind here as he goes off on brand new adventures away from video games. If someone would like to do a biography on him, they can continue where we left off. What will we delve into in our next video game-related episode? 
I think it might be fun to move forward a little bit in time in video game history and also hit a little bit on a region that we've never really talked about before, which is uh, South America and specifically Brazil. I'm sure there's a lot of fascinating South American video game history that we don't really have much of a handle on, though most of that history is a history of being a consumer of products rather than being a creator of products. Even as a consumer of product, being relatively small and unimportant markets compared to some of the bigger markets like the United States, Germany, Japan, etc. But there was one very interesting company that was intricately involved in the video game industry and tied in with Sega called Tectoy that ended up releasing most of the Sega consoles in the 80s and 90s down in Brazil and having a great deal of success with those products. One of the markets where Sega was far more successful than Nintendo, though the market size was still small compared to the US or Europe or whatever. It's still an interesting story of a region that had some interesting video game activity going on in a period of time when we don't normally think about that. Yeah, why don't we take a look at uh, Tech Toy down in Brazil? We are going to hop on a boat now and head on down to South America. We'll see you next time on They Create Worlds. Check out our show notes at podcast.theycreateworlds.com where we have links to some of the things that we discussed in this and other episodes. You can check out Alex's video game history blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com. Alex's book, They Create Worlds, The Story of the People and Companies That Shaped the Video Game Industry, Volume 1, can now be ordered through CRC Press and at major online retailers. Email us at feedback at theycreateworlds.com. Our Twitter is TCW Podcast. Please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash theycreateworlds. Intro music is Airplane Mode by Josh Woodward, found at joshwoodward.com slash song slash airplane mode, used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Outro music is Bacterial Love by Rolla Music, found at freemusicarchive.org, used under a Creative Commons attribution license.